This is Read Japanese Literature. My name is Allison Fincher. This podcast is a history of Japanese fiction and some of its most famous works. We're going to start with some of the oldest works written in Japanese. All the works we discuss are available in translation, so you can read along if you want. I know it's been a long wait since episode two. Unfortunately, my family and I caught COVID and have taken a while to get healthy again. Now we're back, and we expect to post new episodes about every two weeks. Today we're talking about the important Japanese classic, The Tale of the Heike. It's the great samurai epic and tells about the story of the rise of the samurai class. The Tale of the Heike is also the tale of the end of Heian Japan, Genji's Japan. I've heard Heian Japan compared to France in the 1870s under Louis XVI and Marie Antoinette. There are several thousand people making up a cultural elite with virtually no knowledge of what's going on in the outside world. The nobles contracted the provincial warrior class to handle tax collecting and defense. The power of the imperial court gradually declined until by about the 11th century, noble families and religious orders controlled more land than the imperial government did. Under their dominance, a new genre emerged, the gunki monogatari, or martial stories. And martial stories are going to remain an important part of the Japanese literary scene for the next several hundred years. Today, we're focusing on two of these powerful warrior families. The Minamoto, alternately read as Genji, as in the tale of Genji, and the Taira, alternately pronounced Heike. The tale of the Heike is an epic account of the struggle between the Taira and the Minamoto that resulted in the fall of the Taira in the end of the Heian period. Unlike the tale of Genji, Heike is based on a true story. The plot is intricately tied up to the Genpei War of 1180 to 1185. We're going to look at how Heike reflects courtier culture giving way to warrior culture in late Heian Japan. I'll be reading some short excerpts to give you a taste of the tale of the Heike. And then finally, we'll take a closer look at the role of women in Heike and in this period of Japanese history. First, two comparisons might help us make sense of the cultural place and context of the tale of the Heike as a work of literature. First, in some ways, we can compare Heike to the ancient Greek epic, the Iliad. Before it was written, it was passed between different bards who memorized and then recited it. And the story evolved and changed as it passed from mouth to mouth. In the case of Heike, the story was passed between blind bards playing an instrument called a biwa lute. Another useful comparison for Heike is with contemporary European chivalric romances that are also told for and by and celebrate a contemporary class of powerful warlords. In the case of Europe, knights. Examples include the Song of Roland, various Arthurian romances, 
but the best comparison might be to the poem of El Cid. El Cid is the oldest preserved Castilian epic poem and Spain's national epic. Like Heike, El Cid is strongly based on a true story. In the case of El Cid, it's the story of the deeds of Rodrigo Diaz de Vivar, a Spanish warrior knight who briefly overthrew the Moors on part of the Iberian Peninsula. As I mentioned, Heike is the story of the rise and fall of the Tyra clan. And like the tale of Genji, Heike has an enduring Buddhist understanding that the things of this world are fleeting. The epic opens, the Jitavana temple bells rings the passing of all things. Twin sal trees, white and full flower, declare the great man's certain fall. The arrogant do not long endure, They are like a dream one night in spring. The bold and brave perish in the end. They are as dust before the wind. The Buddhism in Heike is both familiar and new. In Heian Japan, Buddhism didn't leave a lot of room for lay people, for people who weren't elite, who didn't go to live in monasteries. Starting in the 12th century, though, many Japanese people began to practice pure land Buddhism. Amida Buddha was a king who was deeply moved by other people's suffering. He gave up his throne and became a monk, and he made a series of vows, including this, if I were to become a Buddha and people hearing my name have faith and joy and recite it for even 10 times, but are not born into my pure land, may I not gain enlightenment. Amida Buddha did reach enlightenment, and now, according to Pure Land Buddhists, presides over the Western paradise. Warriors and ordinary people can call upon his name during their lives, and especially when they are near death. Pure Land Buddhism was very appealing to the warrior class. You could live a secular life, but then end it with an honorable death. And if you were promised paradise after you died, there was no reason to hold on to life at all costs. Readers can divide the tale of the Heike into three parts with different central characters. All of these characters are real, verifiable historical figures. Taira no Kiyomori is a high-ranking official in the court of Emperor Go Shirakawa. He's the head of the Taira clan, and we'll call him just by his given name, Kiyomori. Minamoto no Yoshinaka is an important figure in the Minamoto family. We can call him a bit of a boisterous oaf, but he's still a very important military commander. Minamoto no Yoritomo is his more genteel cousin. He eventually becomes the first shogun of the Muromachi shogunate. And after Yoshinaka, shoguns more or less ruled Japan until the Meiji Restoration in the 1860s. The last major character is a man named Minamoto no Yoshitsune. Yoshitsune is Yoritomo's younger brother. He also becomes a kind of folk hero in Japan, almost a Robin Hood character with many different tales retold about his life. As Heike opens in books one through six, the former emperor retires. 
Power is increasingly in the hands of the Tyra clan, and Kiyomori is the leader of the Tyra clan. His despotism and nepotism grow. So the first few chapters build a sense of impending doom for the Tyra clan. There are fires, angry spirits, Kiyomori arrests and imprisons the retired emperor and loses the retired emperor's support. Maybe most importantly, he orders the burning of many important temples, statues, and Buddhist texts. This is a sacrilege, and it's a signal to the reader that Kiyomori has become a villain. Again, this is framed as a Buddhist narrative, so it's karma, a kind of return of his own evil deeds, when Kiyomori falls ill. His fever is literally hellish. It's too hot to stand within 30 feet of him, and whenever water touches him, it turns into fire. After he dies, we get a restatement of the epic's most important theme, that everything on earth is transient. He whose fame had so resounded the whole length and breadth of Japan, who had wielded colossal power, Kiyomori, in an instant, floated as smoke into the sky over the city while the remains mingled soon with the sands of the shore and all he had been returned to earth. Books 7 through 9 focus on the fall of the Tyra. Kiyomori made a lot of enemies before he died. The retired emperor's son calls for the Minamoto clan to rise up against the Taira, and the Minamoto crush the Taira at the Battle of Kurikawa. The Taira then flee the capital at Kyoto, and they take with them three-year-old emperor Antoku and the three sacred treasures that supposedly Amaterasu had given the royal family, a sword, a mirror, and a jewel. The victorious Minamoto clan isn't united. It's divided between two major factions, followers of Yoshinaka and followers of Yoritomo. The differences between these two men highlight a second important theme in Heike, an ambivalence about court culture. The Taira fell from power, at least it's implied, in part because they'd become too refined too carefully and closely associated with the capital. On the other hand, the Minamoto still clearly value courtly manners and admire high courtly culture. We see that continued admiration of court culture clearly in the difference between these two cousins. Yoshinaka is a bit of an oaf. The narrative calls him boorish in the extreme. He was raised in the country, away from the capital, And the narrator of Heike makes it clear, you can't expect much better from someone raised in the country. Quote, between infancy and the age of 30, he had lived in a mountain village in the Kiso region of Shinano. How could he possibly have acquired polish? So Yoshinaka is a great warrior and even a great man, but he's not a gentleman. His cousin Yoritomo, though, is at home in the capital. And it's in part because he has better manners that Yoritomo is appointed the Barbarian Subduing Commander, or Shogun. Eventually, the two groups take up arms against each other, and Yoritomo's faction destroys Yoshinaka and his followers. 
One of the most famous episodes in the tale of Heike closes Book 9, and it's almost a parable about the loss of this refined Heian culture. A Minimoto fighter named Kumagi Naozane finds a high-ranking Taira alone on the road. Kumagi knocks the man from his horse and tears the helmet from his head, preparing to decapitate him. But the man behind that helmet is a youth, a young man of 16 or 17 years old. His face is lightly powdered. His teeth are blackened. He's clearly a young man who's been raised in the court. And he's also about the same age as Kumagi's own son. The kind of beauty that this young man represents is fleeting. And the narrative seems to imply it will never come again. Kumagi would like to spare this young man, but he realizes he's going to be killed either way. Kumagi decides it would be more merciful for he to kill the young man himself so he can then pray for the young man's soul. He kills the boy, and as a typical, he strips the boy's body. And then the narrator adds some other details. I want to read it to you because it's very moving. And you can hear here how Kumagi is aware that the refinement this young man represents is passing away. He took off the young man's formal robe, meaning to use it to wrap the head, and found at his waist a brocade bag containing a flute. How awful! At dawn today, within the fortress, you could hear men making music, and obviously he was one of them. We boast in our army from the east, warriors by the tens of thousands, but I am certain not one of them brought a flute with him into battle. These noble gentlemen are so refined. Once Yoshinaka and his followers have been destroyed, the Minamoto clan can turn their attention to finally finishing off the Taira. And that's what the final section of Heike is about. They're about the final destruction of the Taira and about the rise of Yoritomo's younger brother and his greatest general, Yoshitsune. It's Yoshitsune who finally defeats the Taira in a naval battle at Dano-ura. Some of the remaining Taira are taken alive, but most of the remaining perish. Kiyomori's son, his nephew, his widow, and his eight-year-old grandson. In 1192, the retired emperor dies. Before he dies, he makes Yoritomo Seitai Shogun, the de facto leader of all Japan. Yoritomo orders the execution of the last Taira male heir, and the tale of the Heike ends. Japan won't see lasting political stability for more than 400 years. When we talked about the tale of Genji, we discussed how, even though it's about a man, it comes in part from a woman's perspective. It's an interior story. It talks about the consequences of Genji's actions on the women in his life. The tale of the Heike, on the other hand, is told from a male perspective and mostly highlights the actions of men. Nevertheless, women played an important role in not only Heike the story, but also its historical moment. 
Westerners tend to think of Japan as a perpetually patriarchal society, but that's really not true, especially historically speaking. It is true that when Japan was forcibly opened to the West, Japanese women had few rights. But keep in mind that that period of, say, English history was a low point for women's rights too. Think about the works of Jane Austen, how difficult life was for women to support themselves if they were unmarried or widowed. But we've already discussed on this podcast how prehistoric Japan might have been matriarchal, how the sun goddess Amaterasu founded the imperial line, and we've discussed examples of powerful women like Queen Himiko. In Heian and Muromachi, Japan, there are many examples of powerful women. We're going to talk about four such women from Heike and its historical context. The first is an example of a woman with political power, Hojo Masako, Yoritomo's wife and eventually his regent. She's not especially important in the tale of the Heike, although she does come up. But after Yoritomo died, she helped found a council of regents for his 18-year-old son. She shaved her head and became a nun, but she was nevertheless intimately involved in the political infighting of the Muromachi period. And eventually she served as de facto shogun. Other nuns referred to her as the nun shogun. And historians compared her to early empresses in China and Japan. There are women in Heike with martial power. The office Yoshinaka had a famous woman fighting alongside him, Tomoe. Tomoe is probably the most famous female samurai warrior, period. She may or may not have existed, but Heike doesn't tend to make up characters whole cloth. She's generally presented not only as Yoshinaka's mistress, but also as one of his most trusted generals. Beautiful and deadly, an archer of rare strength, a powerful warrior, and on foot or on horseback, a swordsman to face any demon or god, she was a fighter to stand alone against a thousand. She appears in Book 9, at Yoshinaka's last stand. He tries to send her away. He thinks it's dishonorable to die alongside a woman. She refuses, waiting for what she calls a worthy opponent to fight her last fight against. She finds that opponent, brutally decapitates him, before following Yoshinaka's orders to flee. Women warriors weren't all that unusual in medieval Japan. More common were the onabugeisha, female fighters who defended their homelands when their men were away. Tomoe is an example of an onamusha, a rarer offensive fighter who engaged in an offensive battle. There are also examples of what you might call subversive or feminine power. Gyo appears as a minor character in Book 1. Kiyomori spurns her, and it's one more piece of evidence that he has become a villain. Gyo is the most acclaimed Shirabyoshi performer of her day. A Shirabyoshi performer sings and dances while dressed up as a man. Uh, not necessarily a courtesan, although they did sometimes sleep with their patrons. For three years, she had been Kiyomori's favorite, until one day a younger performer comes to Kiyomori's home and asks if she could perform. 
Gyo is the one who talks Kiyomori into seeing this young woman, whose name is Hotoke. Hotoke performs, and to Hotoke's horror, Kiyomori instantly chooses her over Gyo. Gyo is heartbroken. But she leaves, and Kiyomori tries to call her back, and she refuses. She says, now that he is finished with me, I never want to see him again. Eventually, her mother guilts her into going back to see Kiyomori, but he treats her disrespectfully again. And again, Hotoke is horrified. Gyo sings then a song that is not only a restatement of Heike's themes, but also a rebuke toward Kiyomori. What misery it is to share as we do the Buddha nature, yet be so far removed from that happy state. Gyo finds her own way out of the situation by becoming a nun. One night, she hears a knock at the door of her hut, and it's Hotome, who has now also left Kiyomori. Scholar Elizabeth Euler describes the episode as an account of, quote, independent professional women who find strength and community while repudiating a male-dominated world that treats them as objects of pleasure. Finally, one of the most poignant episodes of the Heike is of the death of Kiyomori's widow, Tokiko. After Kiyomori's death, his widow flees the capital with her three-year-old grandson, Emperor Antoku, and the three imperial treasures. With Antoku absent from the capital, the retired emperor appoints his own younger brother, Emperor, instead. So while Antoku could still claim legitimacy as emperor, and he still, very importantly, has those treasures, he never again returns to the capital to hold position as an emperor. The naval battle at Danoura takes place toward the end of the Heike. This is the Tyra's last stand, and it becomes pretty clear they're not going to win. Capture is imminent. There is no way the victorious Minamoto are going to let Antoku live. Tokiko decides to take matters into her own hands. She plans to leap from the boat and drown herself, along with her grandson. It sounds harsh, but it's possibly more merciful than whatever the Minamoto had in mind. Tokiko's final words in Heike reveal a bravery and loyalty to rival any of the soldiers we've read about elsewhere in Heike. And you can also note in the passage I'm about to read her faith in Amida Buddha and Pure Land Buddhism. Quote, I may be a woman, she said, but I will not let the enemy take me. No, your majesty, I shall accompany you. All those loyal to our sovereign follow me. Your majesty, trusting Amida to welcome you into his western paradise, face west and call his name. This land of ours, a few millet grains scattered in remote seas, is not a nice place. I am taking you now to a much happier one, the pure land of bliss. So why are we still reading the tale of the Heike? First of all, because it's important. The contents of the Heike become the subjects of no and kabuki plays, 
popular stories, woodbuck prints, video games. It's also a beautiful story. I hope I've convinced you with some of the excerpts that we've heard today. It's some of the most beautiful writing of any epic I've read from any culture. And then finally, it's a powerful meditation on the nature of human mortality. If you want to read along with us, I've been using the 2012 translation of The Tale of the Heike by Royal Tyler. For more on the history of Japan, I recommend the History of Japan podcast by historian Isaac Meyer. You can look on our website, readjapaneseliterature.com, for links to a couple of episodes relevant for Heike. Next time, we'll be taking a look at medieval and early modern Japanese literature, and we'll see the valiant female warrior Tomoe again, this time as a mournful ghost. If you want to offer feedback or suggestions, I invite you to tweet us at readjapaneselit. I want to give a special thank you to Adam Solove for production assistance, a thank you to Professor Rebecca Copeland for help with secondary sources and to the Japanese Literature Group on Facebook, and to producer Kaim, K-H-A-I-M, for today's music, at Kaim Music on Twitter and KaimMusic.com. Music.com.